You're listening to the Rio Fernando Collaborative Speaker Series. I'm your host, Jim O'Donnell. In this series, we will explore issues of land use, water, and restoration in the Rio Fernando watershed of Taos, New Mexico. This morning, we are going to talk with Dr. Malia Volke. She is from the New Mexico Environment Department. And we, our subject this morning is Nature's Reservoir Builders. Um, how we can work with nature and with natural processes to save our water, uh, to protect our waters, to clean our waters, and to store our waters um, in an efficient, ecological, and cheaper way. So, like I said, Dr. Malia Volke with the New Mexico Environment Department, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Well, I am a trained ecologist, and I am most interested in river and riparian ecosystems. Uh, so riparian meaning those vegetation communities that we find along our rivers and streams. In New Mexico, sometimes we think of this as the, the bosque, uh, particularly along the Rio Grande, or the ribbon of green that um, borders our rivers and the arid southwest. And I have studied how riparian plant communities respond to alterations in hydrology, such as river damming and other human disturbances. And what is it that you do at the Environment Department exactly? Uh, so currently I work for the Department of Energy Oversight Bureau based in Los Alamos. So this is a, a branch of the Environment Department that does environmental monitoring related to Los Alamos National Laboratory and potential contaminants associated with laboratory functions dating back to the Manhattan Project. So we monitor a variety of environmental media, such as air, surface water, groundwater, sediment, precipitation, and even biological organisms, such as fish, um, to look for uh, contaminants such as heavy metals, radionuclides, PCBs, things of that nature um, that may pose a concern to human health or environmental health. And so um, people are probably familiar with the chromium plume in the groundwater underneath some lanol facilities. And so we monitor things like that, tracking the, the concentration, the presence, the absence, and the, the trends of particular contaminants over time. And then all of that data becomes publicly available. The point is to have a transparent, independent monitoring of the laboratory and then to make those monitoring results available to the public online. And that's on a, a website called Intellis. Uh, what's the address for that website, just in case people want to check that out? Sure. It's IntellusNM.com. So it's I-N-T-E-L-L-U-S-N-M.com. And so that website is where you have all of this data that you're collecting on air and water quality up in the Pajarito Plateau. Correct, yes. So it includes both the laboratory monitoring and the state's independent monitoring as well. Okay. And, and again, just so people really know your background, um, some of your, your previous research I thought was, was particularly interesting, especially as it has to do with riparian forests or uh, the forests that we find and the ecosystems that we find along rivers. Um, talk just a little bit about your, 
previous research some more? Sure. So my research investigated the effects of river damming on cottonwood forests within the Missouri River system. And so I did an in-depth study of a feature called a reservoir delta backwater. That's a, a bit of a mouthful, but essentially it's a feature that forms where either the main stem river or a tributary stream enters into a reservoir. And due to the new base level imposed by the reservoir, these areas usually see a lot of sediment accumulation. Rivers are naturally transporting sediment, and when they encounter this lower gradient and reservoir pool, a lot of that sediment accumulates and drops out and creates this new sort of deltaic system uh, and backwater, not unlike what we would see at a coastal delta where a, a river meets the ocean. And so in these regulated rivers, uh, really no one had studied these features before, partly because they're quite novel to the system. Uh, they can only be as old as the reservoirs, which sometimes is, is just a half century or a little bit more than that, and then they take a little while to show up. But what I was looking at is how these features may actually be suitable to native riparian communities such as cottonwood forests that have been in decline elsewhere in the regulated river system below dams. And so they provide uh, the sediment dynamics and shallow water conditions and just a dynamic setting when, with the rise and fall of the reservoir coupled with the flow of the stream that creates some of those dynamic environments that things like cottonwood and willow need to germinate and survive. And so I was trying to understand really the, how these systems uh, are just characterize them physically and then also biologically and understand how they are both similar and different to wild rivers in terms of their biodiversity and um, ecosystem functions that they may be able to provide in areas where we have sort of seen declines in um, some of those vegetation communities. And how did the um, these newer systems, these kind of novel ecosystems, um, shape up against, e ecologically shape up against um, uh, more native systems? So I did an in-depth study of one of these systems. So I studied the White River in South Dakota where it enters Lake Francis Case Reservoir on the Missouri River, which is a very, very big water storage system. And so in that example, um, I did a um, comparison. Well, the White River itself is unregulated. It's one of the longest undammed rivers of its size in the lower 48 states that hasn't been regulated. And so it provided a really good reference system for what these systems look like in the past. And um, the comparisons I did, I did field studies of the vegetation. So I looked at uh, cottonwood forest stand composition, age dynamics, and structure, and I compared those characteristics between that reservoir-affected backwater environment to the upstream, more natural stands along the river. And what I found is that they are largely similar. Um, in most cases, you're still getting the foundational cottonwood and willow species back um, on these features, and these communities are going through natural plant succession like you would in other Missouri River forests. But there are some differences, mainly that these delta backwaters tend to be wetter environments because they are 
sitting right next to the reservoir, and the reservoir is creating elevated groundwater, and maybe if it's fluctuating, it's even flooding these systems more frequently. So you get um, higher moisture conditions. And so what I found is that these features generally supported more wetland-affiliated plants and wetland obligates things like cattails that, you know, really like to keep their feet wet uh, for most of the year than do the forest further upstream along the more natural river. And how did these, how does some of this research that you were doing there translate to our rivers in New Mexico? So I guess let's go broad first. What is maybe the general state of our rivers in New Mexico at the moment? Yeah, that, that's a big question. Um, Very just big. Just looking at it, <laughs> uh, you know, and it depends on what the goals are or what the target is or, or what people are, are most interested in, you know, in terms of the values we want to get from our rivers and streams. But just looking at it from a water quality perspective, and I just looked at the, the list of impairments in New Mexico uh, yesterday, and if you look at that list or of impaired waters in the state, meaning that they are surpassing some sort of limit or threshold for some sort of pollutants like nutrients, temperature, sediment, if you look at that list, most of our rivers, at least the larger ones at lower elevations, do have one or more impairments. The higher elevation streams do not show up so much. Um, in terms of impairments. They're a bit more resilient and a bit more protected. But from a water quality um, imp uh, standpoint, most of our larger rivers have at least um, something, something that they are impaired by. And, uh, you know, a slight shift to subject here. You know, we talk about water all the time on this show. It's obviously a major issue in New Mexico. And something that the Taos Land Trust focuses on. And um, I've been getting the question several times now, who owns the rivers in New Mexico? Well, that, that is definitely a very complicated question, and I am, I'm not the best person to answer it. But, the, you know, I will try to give a general answer. You know, it depends on the river system. And there usually are many different entities that may play a role in a given reach of river. So, you know, water storage and flood control projects are typically done by federal agencies like the Bureau of Reclamation or U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, um, the New Mexico Office of the State Engineer. So a state agency um, manages and oversees water rights in the state. And then water quality is overseen more by the Environmental Protection Agency and the New Mexico Environment Department. And then, of course, water rights and water law is an extremely tricky subject, and um, I definitely, <laughs> that's beyond uh, my expertise. But in general, multiple entities may be involved with the, the management and allocation of water throughout the state. And the reason I wanted to bring that up was because it, it kind of points to how difficult it is to deal with some of the issues facing our our rivers when you have multiple owners and managers and rules and laws and regulations that uh, impact different sections of a river. It, it, it's it's hard to manage a, a, a waterway or a watershed as as a as an entity in and of itself. Absolutely, it's it's very complicated because, as you say, it doesn't it doesn't belong or you know 
fall under the jurisdiction of just one entity, usually. We will be right back. Let's go right into um, some of the human impacts on the river. Um, you know, we're we're particularly focused on these high altitude or higher altitude uh, waterways up here in the north, and um, um, in particular, as you know, the Taos Land Trust has a has an interest in the Rio Fernando, which uh, comes down Taos Canyon, because we are part of the Rio Fernando Collaborative, and also we own about 20 acres along the. Um, the creek, and we manage several conservation uh, easements along that river. And there's all sorts of, of different impacts from grazing to road building uh, um, and, and to invasive species that, uh, and, and also E. coli contamination, um, that the Rio Fernando and, and other creeks like it face. So let's dive in a little bit to, to some of these human impacts on the river. Let's start off with road building. Okay. Uh, well, you know, roads and urbanized areas tend to create more impervious surfaces, and so in, in those settings you get more, more runoff, less infiltration during a storm event or during a snowmelt event, and then you're getting more runoff into a stream. So, uh, you know, a higher velocity and uh, more volume of water than maybe the stream would have otherwise absorbed before the road. And then, of course, roads are collecting pollutants, and, you know, that's not necessarily giving a chance for those to get filtered out before they enter a stream. You know, oftentimes we like to build roads through river canyons because rivers create natural corridors, and so generally we're sort of restricting the, the movement of rivers in those cases because we don't want them to erode into a roadbed or, or cause flooding. And so, Often, you know, during at stream crossings or adjacent to roads, a river has to become armored and doesn't get to move around as much and maybe loses some of its riparian buffer and natural filtering system uh, between when the water hits the ground and when it enters the stream. So those are some general impacts of roads. And again, um, stream crossings pose uh, another unique uh, challenge in terms of managing our rivers. And up in the Rio Fernando Canyon, there are a number of, quite a number of homes that are built basically right in the riparian zone or right on the river. And so the roads to access those have have, uh, quite an impact. Yeah, that makes sense. You're just having maybe more traffic in an area that is sensitive, more, more potential sources for pollutants or sediment or erosion. And then again, just whatever is happening in the greater watershed on the landscape can often be measured in in the stream at at some point. So changes, any sort of modification that you do in the surrounding landscape, whether it be loss of vegetative cover or replacing soils with impervious surfaces or hardened roadways, you're going to change sort of the, the flow of sediment and water into that system that is going to 
um, alter or have an effect on, you know, the water quality potentially in that stream. And how does, how do things like grazing impact the water supply and the conditions of the rivers? Uh, again, that, that's a pretty, pretty broad question, but I think, again, any time that you remove vegetation, whether it's in the more upland portions of the watershed or right along the, the stream channel, more in the riparian zone, that it is going to have a, a cause and effect in general, and, you know, depending on the magnitude of change. So if you're removing vegetation and having more bare ground in the uplands, you expose those soils to more erosion during a rainstorm event, and a sheet flow event across the landscape could potentially deliver more sediment to the river than if it was more vegetated, if you had more groundwater. If you reduce the riparian canopy adjacent to the stream, then that means that you're losing a lot of shade to the stream. So more sunlight is going to reach uh, the water itself, and you may see an increase in temperature in that water body. Um, and so, and maybe you are also losing organic inputs to the stream, leaf litter that is important for the base of stream food webs. Uh, or woody debris that can be really important for the maintenance of in-channel habitats inside the stream. So you can have, uh, you know, these cause and effect relationships depending on, you know, the magnitude of change in the, in the area, in the land that surrounds the stream. Cows, um, as we know, are often, you know, they do have a significant impact on riparian areas, um, cattle grazing. Um, but they're not the only grazing animal out there. We also have um, very large elk herds that, that have impacts on riparian areas. Is that right? Yes, yes. I have definitely seen in northern New Mexico what I sort of consider mushroom or broccoli-shaped willows, and you can see that they have been browsed um, up to, you know, the height of an elk, uh, and so you get these odd-shaped willows. And willows and cottonwoods, you know, they tend to be really tasty. Both animals, both wild and domestic, really like to, to eat those species, and so they can often be targeted by ungulates um, like elk and cattle because they are quite tender and, and a really good browse species for them. And, you know, not unlike people, the rivers are a, a nice place to, to congregate and, and to feed and one of one of the reasons that the the elk um, are are congregate and hang out in riparian areas um, in ways that they didn't historically or naturally is because not all of our um, species are uh, our, our ecosystem is not intact. We're missing things like wolves and and other predators that might move those elk around. Sure, they they may feel more comfortable to hang out in a riparian area longer or in greater numbers than maybe they did in the past. So I'm just trying to touch on each one of these issues that, that, that impact our rivers. And um, another one we have up here is that uh, a lot of our forests are overgrown. So when you have too many trees in a forest, and I know that that is... Th how you define, quote-unquote, too many trees is very up for debate. But um, when, you, when you have a large 
tree cover in the uplands. What kind of impact does that have on the river? Um, well, I haven't studied this directly, but just again, generally speaking, I think that you can, you know, you can change your water balance potentially if you have unnaturally dense sands or, you know, more dense than historic condition, you know, those those forests can be prone to severe wildfire, which as we have seen in the last decade or so in New Mexico, some pretty significant you know, wildfire events that are followed by a lot of sediment and ash entering rivers. So that can pose a water quality concern, at least um, in years immediately following a wildfire. And then you can probably change the water balance in that system, it gets a little complicated because, you know, you can think about snow falling on trees and maybe more of it is sublimating or evaporating directly from the tree canopy, but you also have more shade, which may be potentially uh, protecting or keeping the snowpack intact for longer. And so it's, it's a little bit difficult to, to answer the question just because there's so many interacting factors you know, the, the size of a watershed, the slope of um, the watershed, and, you know, all of these interacting factors that combine. But certainly there is some, there's likely to be some effect when you're changing the density of your upland forest. And, and just sticking with the, the idea of forest, but going back to the riparian zone, you know, you, you and I talked in the past about um, kind of the life history of of cottonwood and willow species and and what makes up a um, a riparian forest and so and what is that supposed to look like what 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 would we expect in a natural system and how would that process because um, we know that we know that forests aren't stagnant they change over time so what what is that process what's the life history of say the cottonwood willow type of system sure. Well, it, it's important to remember that rivers are naturally dynamic systems, and the species that depend on them co-evolved with this dynamism. And a lot of the values that we humans derive from rivers are linked to these systems being highly dynamic. And that's really important when thinking about the foundational um, tree species along most of our western rivers, the cottonwood. And the, one of the main things to know about cottonwood is that it is a pioneer species. And so that means that it is among the first species to colonize a new site, any new ground. You know, lichens are pioneer species as they're establishing themselves on rocks and slowly, slowly breaking it into soil. And so in the same way, cottonwoods are pioneer species when they colonize a new sandbar that is deposited by the river. And typically rivers, again, naturally transport sediment, and sediment isn't always a bad thing. Uh, they both erode and deposit sediment, and that creates seedbeds for cottonwood and willow. And even though they are the first to arrive, they do need certain conditions met. They need full sunlight and they need bare moist soil to germinate. So they don't do well. You know, if a cottonwood seed falls in a really grassy area, it's probably not going to germinate and make it to a seedling phase. And so they, 
really rely on the river to be dynamic and to be overflowing its banks and having some erosion and deposition processes. And again, these become more important in lowland settings where rivers are more naturally move across their broader floodplains uh, and in order to germinate and then survive. So that, that's a really important component that I find most people don't know because cottonwood forests don't operate the same way as a ponderosa pine forest, uh, for instance, where, you know, you get multiple age structures within a given stand where you may have a 100-year-old ponderosa tree and also some ponderosa seedlings in the understory. Cottonwood forests tend to be even aged. They all got their start at the same time period in general, unless there's adequate um, sunlight and moisture in the understory. And so they don't reproduce in their own stands. So that means that cottonwoods constantly have to be on the move and looking for new bare ground for them to be able to reproduce. And a lot of times, a lot of our modifications that we've imposed on rivers or um, land management and land use have really limited the opportunities for rivers to provide these sites. And so that's why in a lot of our big river systems, we're seeing cottonwoods aging and not really being able to replace themselves so well. Give us an example of where you, where you see that, where um, somebody who's listening might, might know of, of an area. Well, the Rio Grande is probably one of the, the best examples, especially, uh, you know, below Cochiti as it, you know, comes out of the more confined gorge. And in, in that setting, you know, historically there would have been big floods and, you know, the river would have worked the floodplain. And now we've mainly channelized the river and built levees. And so it acts more as a canal or water delivery system then, you know, it's really because of housing and developments, we don't want it, the river, to move so much. And so it really cannot access its floodplain. And so it becomes this really neat and tidy system where, you know, any, a lot of sandbars could be eroded um, rather quickly during, during a flow event or during a normal uh, flow, during an average flow event. They're not, there's really not any place for these different features to persist in the landscape. And because the river is not allowed to flood, because we're protecting our infrastructure, we lose delivery of new sediments and water to the floodplain, which would again create the ideal seedbeds for cottonwood and willow germination by seed. Malia, does that mean that in places like, like I'm thinking about the Bosque in, in, um, in Albuquerque, cottonwoods live to, to be what, like 100, 150 years, something like that? Yeah, that, that's a tricky estimate. I think um, there's certainly cases where we found cottonwoods to live longer, you know, 350, I think a 450-year-old cottonwood has been documented in North Dakota so it's not as if they have, uh, you know, a programmed lifespan like we humans do. You know, trees can sort of, they don't have programmed cell deaths, so they could live indefinitely, but they do, you know, become decadent with age and, you know, their metabolism is sort of only keeping up with maintaining their large size and not really putting on new growth or their ability to repair. So usually, historically in the past, Cottonwoods may have been, you know, eroded by the, the river before they had a chance to live out their whole lifespan. But 
uh, yeah, d depending on the, the growth conditions and if they don't have any disturbance, they can at least live 150 years and oftentimes beyond that if they are not disturbed. And so do we face a situation in certain areas where the river's constricted, it's not allowed to go through its, its natural process of wandering over the landscape where these cottonwood forests reach their maturity and their old age, so to speak. And then we're in danger of a situation where we're not going to have the ability to have a replacement forest. Is that actually an issue? Yeah, yes, that's, that's definitely a concern. Uh, in the studies I did on the Missouri River, which is, is not unlike the processes that are occurring in the Rio Grande, uh, really we saw an age shift, a shift towards older forests. The, the youngest forests, 10 to 20 years old, are really declining. They're a very small proportion of the total forest. Most of the cottonwood forests in the Missouri River system in the upper Missouri are those that establish before or shortly after the dams were put in and regulation uh, was um, imposed on the system. So we just, the, the cottonwoods are there, but they're not reproducing. And then we, we start to see uh, a much more limited diversity of sand ages, which, uh, you know, in, in these systems, part of the value and the diversity and, and the, the wildlife value is having a mosaic of different forest ages and forest types and forests across the landscape that are in different stages of succession. And that tends to support the most biodiversity and the most ecosystem functions and unique habitats for uh, rare species or species you might not otherwise find. And so we see this homogenization of our, our both the physical environment and then that is reflected in the vegetation communities skewing again, more towards older forests, which are certainly valuable themselves, but they are very limited in their ability to reproduce themselves. Malia, when we've been talking a little bit about these, these big stands, like, say, in the Bosque downhill Albuquerque. Um, let's, let's go up the watershed to, to someplace like the Rio Fernando or some of our higher-altitude uh, creeks up here. What's, what's the difference when it comes to... Um, uh, or, or how, I guess, do, do our upland rivers compare to our lower elevation rivers when it comes to uh, the forests, the riparian forests? Well, as you move upstream, you, typically you have narrower valleys and coarser substrates, so probably more of a cobble bed system versus a sandier, finer sediment system in the lower elevation. So these, these valleys and the extent of the, the riparian zone is going to, you know, narrow as you go upland. You may see, um, you know, certainly herbaceous riparian areas as well, wet meadows and things of that nature. Uh, rivers uh, may not, you know, because of their size and because of being in more confined valleys, they may not move around quite as much. So, uh, you know, I, I suppose as you move upper, more uh, upstream that some of these processes just become a bit more reduced than what you would see in, uh, in a more lowland system. And I think willows become more important and we don't see as many of these big cottonwood stands as, as the valleys narrow and you move upstream and, and species change too. Talk more about that species change in, in from, from what to what and how. 
Uh, well, you know, each species has a sort of preferred range of tolerance. So, it, it, for instance, at, at higher elevations, I always see more narrow-leaf cottonwoods uh, in, along the streams versus all, in Albuquerque, uh, we are looking at Rio Grande cottonwood. And we may see at the higher elevations dominance by smaller trees and more shrubs than, you know, the big, more classic forests. Um, down on the Rio Grande. And um, is are the upland river systems as dynamic as lower elevation? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I guess that's a little bit hard to answer without knowing the, the specific context or what exactly the dynamism, um, what particular aspect you're talking about. But, you know, they are the higher elevation streams are dynamic in their own right, but they they do not have the capacity to move. They're simply not moving as much water or as much sediment. So the, the energy is just less in, in the smaller uh, system. And, and their sort of room to roam is, is reduced. And, and their ability to, to move around is somewhat reduced in those higher elevation systems. But they do, they tend to be steeper slopes. Uh, or have a higher gradient. And so that, that's a big difference. And one of the things, I, I guess, as we're talking about this, we think about, oh, we should have a, a forest along, all along these high elevation creeks. But there are sections of, of our rivers where a forest isn't, say, the, the optimal ecosystem, right? Right, correct. Yeah, there, you know, there's definitely no one size fits all. You know, the thing about plants is that you know, they won't grow where they don't, they cannot tolerate the conditions. The, the plants, what I enjoy so much about plant ecology is that they, they really tell you so much about the long-term and bioenvironmental trends. So if you're seeing cattails, you know, in your system, that means that you've got relatively permanent sources of water because cattails can tolerate and, in fact, need to have, you know, pretty much constant contact with with water. And whereas a cottonwood or a willow, they actually don't want their feet to be quite that wet all of the time, and they can tolerate some groundwater drawdown throughout the system. And so the plants are simply just responding to their environment. And as you say, there's not just one optimum or a one, you know, optimal endpoint that we want to get to. We want to sort of understand the site potential of a given area and an herbaceous wet meadow that has sedges and grasses is sometimes that's what's suitable for that environment. And I think, you know, moving forward into the future, you know, we really need to be thinking about ecosystem functions and, and different values and maybe not necessarily being too fixated on a specific formula or uh, a replica of the past, but understanding a site's potential and, you know, doing what we can to, to maintain that potential and a variety and a diversity of habitat types. So it, I think that's really interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing you say is that um, that as we work to restore these systems or, or work with them somehow to, to, to bring them into to ecological health, Having a, a set picture of how things should be might not be very helpful? 
I think it's good to maintain some flexibility and to understand that, you know, some of our systems, we simply, you know, cannot have it both ways or we can't maybe derive everything we may want. And so, you know, one of my recommendations is always to, if you're going to be doing a riparian planting, it would be great to mix in some drought-tolerant species or, you know, maybe collecting species from a slightly lower elevation, anticipating, you know, increasing temperatures and reduced water supply in the future. And, you know, maybe that isn't going to replicate the vegetation community that was there in the past, but it still provides nesting habitat for birds and shade to the stream and water purification and all of these values that we, we want from our rivers. And so it, it isn't necessarily this perfect replica of what was there in the past, but it is what the site can support now and still provide some, some good ecosystem functions. That's, that's really interesting. And, and this relates because recently you published a document called Habitat Restoration and Management of Native and Non-Native Trees in Southwestern Riparian Ecosystems. So quite a title, but um, t- <laughs> talk about uh, that paper. Yeah, so uh, really I was inspired to, to write this, and I should say that this really is a review. So other people were talking about this before, but my goal with this, these guidelines was to talk about non-native riparian trees, things like tamarisk or also known as salt cedar and Russian olive in the state, and to distill down some of the information to be more accessible to general and scientific audiences, and then to also make it New Mexico specific with local examples and hopefully make it a bit more compelling and close to home. And, you know, in my first job with the state, I was reviewing a lot of uh, what had been termed riparian restoration projects. And mostly they were focused on tamarisk and Russian olive removal from river systems in, in the state the Pecos River, the Canadian River, the Rio Grande River. And, and over and over again, I was just noticing that there was a bit of misinformation about there and that the, the problem has been a little bit oversimplified in terms of, you know, all of these species are bad and we have to do everything we can to eradicate them and then we eradicate them and then the problem is, is done. And so that's sort of what, and, and, and I wanted to sort of, go back to the science and really create what is more of a nuanced understanding of of these non-native species and what makes them become invasive and and why they are here. And so that's what I address in this book and also, or in this paper, and wanted to talk about that, how, you know, in some cases, if, if the river systems are no longer suitable for our native species. Of course, you know, I would love to see uh, native cottonwood and willow forests throughout all of our river systems. But in places where those species really cannot grow anymore, there's simply not the right environmental conditions, some of these non-native species do provide some of that habitat and function that, that we are losing. And so I wanted to point out um, how much that these species do get used by wildlife in our state, and then also try to provide a better understanding of why they are here. And it's, you know, often I think um, I avoid the term 
invasive species. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with it, but I think that it implies this sort of invading army of plants that is moving across the landscape and is pushing out all of the natives. And it, often that is a little bit inaccurate. It's not necessarily a direct biological competition that is sort of squeezing out the natives. It's that the environment has changed. The hydrology has changed in ways that are more favorable to these non-natives and not so favorable to our native species. And so if we just remove the non-native trees, we can't expect that it'll just naturally fill in with cottonwoods and willows most of the time. Usually further management or modifications are needed to do that because that's not the underlying problem. It's a symptom of the problem, but it's not the root cause of why these species are here. Can you give us an example of, of, a, of a system, a, a river, or um, an area that you looked at in this study where you've, you found that the current conditions doesn't, don't support native species, and so you've got these invasives that have moved in. Can you give us an example of that? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, most of our river systems in the southwest, the, the lowland river systems, are, are probably have, you know, been impacted in this way. Um, on, let's see, on the Rio Grande, uh, where it runs through Albuquerque, there have been a lot of non-native removal efforts over the years. And sometimes they've been monotypic stands, and sometimes it's tamarisk and Russian olive growing up under cottonwood canopies. Uh, but again, because in those systems, you go to them and the tamarisk has been removed. And I visited some sites along the Rio Grande where, you know, 10 years later after the tamarisk was removed, there's still nothing growing on that site because it's high and dry and often it's covered and can be covered in a deep layer of mulch because when you remove these species, you create a lot of excess biomass that we don't always know what to do with. And, you know, it's good sometimes to have some layering of, of mulch, but sometimes it gets to be quite thick in places depending on what we were learning and what we knew about what we were doing at the time. And so 10 years or more later, there's really not much growing on that site. Or in some cases, we actually facilitated uh, a secondary invasion by some other undesirable weed like kochia. So I've definitely seen that on um, all of the river systems in New Mexico and, and uh, certainly the Rio Grande being one of them. Unfortunately, we're, we are running out of time. There's so many questions I have for you. <laughs> but I wanted to kind of jump to native wildlife also in these, in these systems. And what are the role of, say, beavers, which is definitely one of our favorite subjects, and, and when you remove them from the system or put them back, how does that impact these, these riparian ecosystems? As most people know, beaver are ecosystem engineers. They are highly experienced, highly industrious, and very, very uh, adaptable in a system. And, you know, they like to cut trees and, and build dams. And so uh, beaver dam complexes can add roughness to a system, slow the water down, and just add more diversity because they're out there sort of logging the forest and changing, you know, the vegetation cover and creating new places for new vegetation to establish. And then in general, it's understood that, you know, beaver dams help elevate groundwater and 
uh, can also help, you know, increase supplies of water throughout the growing season. It's not getting all shipped downstream immediately during the runoff. It's getting slowed down and has more complexity uh, to move through. It's sort of kind of um, defying gravity or slowing down the effects of gravity on pulling the water downstream and acting as little speed bumps for the water in that system. So beaver can create a lot of unique wetland and off-channel habitats and you know, they don't stay in one place for very long either. They usually uh, move around after they've worked an area for a few years. So they add a lot of those dynamics to a system and a lot of habitat diversity. You know, we were just talking about when a system no longer can support native species like cotton and, and willow. When, when something like the beaver moves in, and starts impacting that system, can they create or change the conditions to better suit native species? Uh, absolutely. Any, anything, any action that it, it causes an increase in groundwater and water supply and, you know, co- lateral connectivity of a channel with a floodplain is going to move in the direction of benefiting cottonwood and willow. And cottonwood and willow have co-evolved with beaver. So they're, they're very well adapted to each other. You know, I, I do know that among uh, conservation groups like Wild Earth Guardians, Taos Land Trust, other, other groups, there has been uh, a move towards looking at beavers as ways to, you know, yes, slow down the, the water, repair uh, ecosystems, uh, filter water, um, and, and, st- and to help store it in the ground to slow it down. But are the state agencies, to your knowledge, starting to look more towards these nature-based solutions like Beaver as opposed to giant, expensive projects like Cochiti Dam or Elvado? Yeah, I think that, you know, state agencies that provide funding sources for, you know, these types of restoration projects are open to, you know, these new, you know, new ideas and nature-based solutions. And I think as, you know, in the future as funding becomes tighter and, you know, our, our miles of stream that need attention and restoration, uh, you know, stays quite large, that we're going to be looking for some of these less expensive solutions that uh, can have additive effects on the landscape. There's simply, you know, not enough funding to go around to address all of the problems. So. I think the more nature-based, as you say, solutions that are self-maintaining and um, are maybe less uh, resource-intensive and require less funding from the outset, you know, are and passive forms of restoration um, are going to be, you know, have a growing interest in, in those strategies simply because, you know, for lack, lack of funding. And then there's certainly cases where a more heavy-handed approach is desired, you know, depending on, on your goals. Uh, so uh, the nature-based solutions are certainly in the mix. We've been talking to Dr. Malia Volke of the New Mexico Environment Department. Malia, thank you so much for joining us. Have a good one, Malia. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Rio Fernando Collaborative Speaker Series, recorded and produced by Jim O'Donnell, edited by Brett Tomadin, Recorded live at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM True Taos Radio in Taos, New Mexico. For more information, visit www.riofernando.org 
Thank you for joining us.